This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, Ethan Brown and his father, Peter, speak about future sustainable meat options. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Ethan and Peter to the stage. It's a thrill to welcome back Ethan Brown. So this part is about food. It's about sustenance, it's about pleasure, and it's about the guilt that we feel when we eat it, how we get it, how we waste it, and what kinds of new marvels await us in the future. Uh, Last year, Ethan gave us a great talk and first introduced us to the world of tasty alternative protein and why plant-based burgers are good for the planet, good for the animals, And as I said, true to his word, he's back here this year with the goods. Ethan? Yep. And Dad, right? You're here with you. Peter Brown. So um, I'm a professor at McGill. I'm head of a project called Economics for the Anthropocene. and not everybody knows what the Anthropocene means. It refers basically to, a, to an idea that this era, starting sometime after the Second World War, um, has become an era dominated by humans, that the Earth has become dominated by humans, and that this is both the flowering of the human, as we've seen today in these wonderful presentations we've seen, but it's also the degradation of the Earth, right? So we're in a kind of period of time here where certain massive improvements are being made, where at the same time the life support systems of the planet are being degraded, chemistry of the planet's being changed by us, and it's, uh, it's quite a, a, dangerous, a dangerous situation. So um, uh, Ethan and I are both gonna, going to speak. Um, and my, my part is on uh, whether, we're, whether we should think of ourselves as masters of the earth or as members of a community of life. And I'm obviously going to take the, the second option. So, so one of the things that I've uh, come to uh, think uh, about, I've, I've had a career as a philosopher and uh, with some study of theology and things like that, is that, that in part it's, it's certain material things. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of wealth and so forth, and th- these are drivers in the Anthropocene. But the Anthropocene also depends upon some very ancient ideas about the place of the humans in the, in the universe and the place of humans <clears throat> with respect to other living things and to the, to the earth itself. And, and this, is, this is perhaps, painting called the creation is perhaps a, a, a way of epitomizing that where humans are thought of as, as different than all other 
uh, living things because we are made in, in the image of God. And this gives us a certain privileged place on, on the earth. There's a huge literature on this, of course. Um, but I, I think that, that that idea also comes from, from Greek philosophy, particularly from, from Plato and Aristotle. So deep in, our, in the roots of our culture is the idea that we're, we're some sort of a special being with, with special privileges. And this, this idea um, comes, plays out through, through history in a, in a, in a large number of ways. Uh, this is a painting from the second half of the 19th century uh, by, I believe, somebody named Hart, H-A-R-T. And it's called American Progress. It's an amazing painting because it's so candid. Right? It, it shows progress is driving off the original human settlers of North America and driving off the other species, right? Um, that's what we do, right? And that's what we continue to do. So it's, um, another thing that's interesting about this, this painting is that the, the woman is fashioned after the Statue of Liberty or some other, you know, macro female figure, um, she doesn't touch the ground, right? She is separate from biological reality, right? And it's... Um, where that shows up, interestingly enough, again, is in the discipline of economics, which is what I really specialize in. Uh, this is a diagram. This is what the economy is. It's a circular diagram of goods, services, and factors of production that goes around and around in a circle. The economy is fully embedded in the Earth's biogeochemical processes. When you buy a car, you don't get the idea of a car. You get plastic and metal and you know, spark plugs and all that kind of stuff. And this, this image of the economy is one of the main drivers of the Anthropocene because it doesn't cause us to think about where the material comes from or where the waste goes. And it's impossible to do anything without degrading energy, right? So that's just a, a law of physics. So what's, what's happened in the way the, the discipline of economics has developed is that it has stayed almost completely unconnected to earth system science and the developments of, uh, in, in astrophysics and, and the theories about the development of the universe. This is, this is kind of on a, on a siding. Now, it wouldn't matter if it's on a siding if it wasn't affecting anything, but it affects things sort of ubiquitously around the world. Every country in the world drives for increased economic growth, even though there are many countries in the world, such as this one, where the aggregate wealth is already very high. You can do anything anywhere on the Earth to any other species, or to asteroids, it turns out, now under American law. Um, and, um, you know, that's, it's, it provided it's good for humans, it's, it's okay to do it. Uh, the second thing is that it imagines the economy as an isolated subsystem of biophysical reality. That's just completely absurd. And, of course, um, there is no principle of distribution or fairness, right? In, in the diagram, there's no way of allocating shares to support life functions, either among humans or, or other species. So um, this also has very, very bad uh, consequences, this set of assumptions. Um, in the U.S. is kind of the poster child of an enormous, huge mistake that's going on and now reaching, hopefully, its apogee of radical and degrading inequality. I mean, of just the mass of the shift of wealth to uh, people who are already extremely rich is, is enormous. But the discipline of economics, as understood currently, doesn't have much to say about that. And um, secondly, it, it facilitates the purchase of government. 
So you have mass, massive wealth, and then you can simply influence and buy, for all practical purposes, the, the political process. And the third bad consequence is it's destabilizing the Earth's life support systems. So yeah, the, the most obvious one that most everybody knows about now is climate, but it's also uh, ra radically changing the chemistry and temperature of the ocean. The ocean has, is just in the UN, uh, came, had a conference on this last week, or the week before, that the ocean is, has massive amounts of plastic trash in it. Um, and th these are consequences of a high consumption uh, consumer lifestyles. It's the goal of the current economic system. So what we need to do is to come to a different understanding of the relationship between ourselves and the planet and to fashion a, um, a working relationship with the other species with which we share heritage and destiny. One of the things that is quite amazing is the degree to which the uh, co-evolutionary worldview that really gets, a, of course, a big step up with Darwin, but it's been ratified in all kinds of different directions in the last 170 years or so, is that um, you know, the whole notion that's in my early slide about humans being separate is just not true. Um, so we're, we're part of this, this commonwealth of life, and what, if you look at the way higher education operates, in the social sciences and the humanities, this idea hasn't come to become a basic idea yet. It's not, I'm not saying it's not there, it's just not a, a fundamental idea. But in, the, in biology, chemistry, and physics, they are integrated with, this, with the evolutionary worldview. And so, so higher education is really split in a kind of uh, schizophrenic way between one way of thinking about things and another that are not, not the same. Kate Rayworth, uh, written a really nice little easily understood book called Donut Economics. And she basically makes a, a simple point, is that the economy needs to operate between a ceiling of how much waste it puts out and a floor of what's basically fair. And so she's created this very simple diagram, which is brilliant, that shows those two constraints, right? So this would be a big step forward uh, over the current neoclassical model. And the next step, in, in my view, is to think, start with an analysis of the economy as uh, beginning with the biophysical, biophysical systems and our understanding of those systems by which the Earth operates, as opposed to imagine that all of that is irrelevant and then try to fix it, fix it later. Coming up after the break. Eliminating or reducing substantially animal agriculture. A big step in the right direction for planetary health, for being able to cut back on the amount of land that's invested in, in um, raising animals and, and reforest that. With clean water, we'd have less cancer, less heart disease. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Ethan and Peter Brown speak about future sustainable meat options. What should our relationship with other animals and the earth be? Should be uh, membership, that we're members of the bio, biophysical uh, evolutionary community, that we have uh, duties uh, to keep the house clean, um, to make it so that all life forms uh, can flourish and survive and, and continue to evolve. And then lastly, to use the Earth's ability to support complex life with care and um, uh, concern for the future, which we don't do now. We just ex we're expending, uh, independent of the climate crisis, right? We're, we're just wasting fossil fuel at an, at an enormous rate. So this is really a kind of a simple argument. Um, get, get from Albert Schweitzer. 
um, is to take the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but then as uh, Schweitzer said, the ethic of reverence of life is simply to extend that to all living things. Um, and so last, lastly, I just, there, there are three things um, that I think are essential to rethinking the human-Earth-biosphere relationship. One is to recognize that the human project is too big. We're too successful, right? There, there are too many of us, and we use too much stuff. And a lot of what we use is toxic, persists in the biosphere for a very long period of time. Um, climate change is urgent. We're um, dealing with it. Whether it's too late, I, I don't know. It's quite possible it is. Um, but as we'll connect to what Ethan's going to talk about, eliminating or reducing substantially animal agriculture, big step in the right direction for planetary health, for being able to cut back on the amount of land that's invested in, in um, raising animals and, and reforest that, um, and to um, with clean water, we'd have less cancer, less heart disease, and so forth. Um, and then lastly, we have to have some principle of justice or uh, fairness between humans and other species. We've, we've taken up more and more of the life support capacity of the planet, particularly in the last 50 years. To, to me, the role of religion in the Anthropocene is to think about it, the uh, human-Earth relationship as reverence for the sources of our being, piety. And so the, the Earth is our mother. It's, our, it's the source of our being. None of us would be here without it. And if we want to have an ethic of respect, the, the uh, elements of that are in our religious traditions. They're just kind of buried. Thank you very much. So what I focus on and have been focusing on for a while now is um, separating meat from animals. And uh, what I've worked on in the last year since we were together last year is, is really uh, two things. Uh, one is uh, executing. Uh, getting our product out to as many people as possible uh, in a way um, that is accessible to as many folks uh, as we possibly can make it. The second is continuing to better understand the role that meat plays in our species and in our culture and in our world going forward. And what I want to talk about today is a, a, an era that I think we're ending into, which is one of meat builders. We're shifting from being hunters and gatherers to agriculturalists ultimately being meat builders, and, and I'll, I'll give some history to that, but I think it's important to first take a step back. Starting in the Middle East, we began to shift from being hunters, foragers, to being farmers. You know, a couple things happened. We started to plant things like wheat, and we started to feed that wheat to livestock. This is a goat, it was one of the earliest domesticated uh, animals. We also planted things like legumes, etc. But as we shifted from a forager community to one that was agriculture, the population exploded. By the first century AD, we were about 250 million people supported by farming. So that works when it's 250 on the globe, but when it's 7 billion, the picture looks like this. So the middle is basically weight of the human population on Earth, surrounded by the livestock required to support that if we continue to use animals for meat. What's left over for everybody else? representing those green spots. So again, 250 million, first century AD, kind of works. Seven billion, no longer works. So we have to find a solution. I went over these last year, but very quickly. If we rely on this going forward, 51% of greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock, three out of 10 top diseases, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, or cancer, 80% of our arable land is used to feed animals, 66 billion animals raised and slaughtered every year. That's not sustainable. The challenge is it's not going the other way. 
right? It's not, we're not reducing. We may be reducing in North America, but we're not reducing globally. This is China. So as China starts to uh, continue to have affluence, you can see that red dotted line is the consumption of animal protein. The green dotted line that's declining is the consumption of cereals. So we're going in exactly the wrong direction. What do we do about this? We have to think completely differently about meat. And this is a great quote uh, from Henry Ford that I, that I love. So I went over this last year, I'll do it very quickly now. We have been obsessed in our thinking about how to make chickens, cows, and pigs more efficient. How to control their emissions, how to grow them bigger, how to grow them faster, how to get more meat from them. That's the wrong approach. That's trying to make the horse-drawn carriage faster. What I'd like people to do is think about the composition of meat, and that opens up an enormous freedom for innovation. And what's great about this is that we understand what meat is. It's amino acids, it's lipids, it's carbohydrates, it's minerals, it's water. It's almost no carbohydrates. How do you build meat? This is fascinating. This is a ground beef from a cow under imaging and ground beef from plants under imaging. It's not that different. It's these five things. We don't need to get them from an animal. Very simple process. You can run this through an animal, where you're basically taking a large amount of plant matter, wheat, soy, corn, etc. Or you can run it directly through heating, cooling, and pressure, which are forces we're familiar with throughout time. Many of the materials on Earth today are formed through that process. If you had a diamond, for example, that's heating and pressure. So we're taking protein from the plant, we're taking lipids from the plant, we're running it through heating, cooling, and pressure to put it into the architecture of meat. We've had some success at doing that. Now, we've met this almost nine years now. But last year, we made a really important breakthrough. We got into the meat case at Whole Foods. So when you think about beef, when you think about poultry, when you think about pork, when you think about fish or seafood, those will be categories of meat created from plants. And so when we sold this in Whole Foods, it sold out immediately, sold out within an hour. The public is very hungry for this. Because people want to keep eating meat. Meat is central to who we are. It's delicious. And so there's this intense interest in what we're doing because people want to continue to enjoy and love meat. Now, really quick, one of these is not like the other. Someone just shout out, which one is actual animal protein? There's one. Burger in the middle. That's not. That right? No, it's this one right here. <laughs> That's it. So this is getting easier and easier to do. It's not easy, but it's becoming easier. Right, so all of those are our products, and then there's the old way of making meat. So this is a restaurant that opened in Sacramento, selling, not so this giving is away, but a selling our restaurant that opened in Sacramento, selling, not giving away, but selling our burger. Thanks for waiting, everybody, it's coming. Thanks for waiting, everybody, you're doing good, it's coming, it's quick, yes. <laughs> Yes. There you go. Okay. This is our distribution. We're in 12,000 stores. We're bit by bit changing the distribution in the meat case. These three stores have agreed to put it in the meat case. We don't sell it unless they're willing to put it in the meat case. But I guarantee by this time next year, most of those will have circles on them. That's how quickly this is moving. Uh, last thing, if you don't believe me and uh, the, the ability to, to make a change, believe these people. That's the founder of Twitter. Obviously, you know who Bill Gates is. 
Now the founder of Twitter, Ray Lane, Oracle, et cetera. This thing's happening. Tyson made an investment in our company. We can solve this, and that's what we're working on. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was very nice. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.